Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the 24th of December in Seoul, Christmas Eve, and I'm joined via Zoom by Ayong Park from the Transitional Justice Working Group to talk about the group's latest mapping project. Before we get started, please leave a review of this podcast so that more people can find us and listen to us. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. Thirdly, go to nknews.org slash shop for our NK leadership chart, art posters, and more. As always, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Okay, to introduce my guest today properly, Ayong Park is a researcher at the Transitional Justice Working Group, or TJWG, a Seoul-based human rights documentation non-government organization. She oversees TJWG's mapping project, documenting and mapping locations connected to human rights violations in North Korea. You can find the Transitional Justice Working Group online at TJWG Seoul on Twitter or en.tjwg.org. Good morning and welcome on the show, Ayong. Good morning, Jacko. Thanks for having me here today. I have a lot of trouble saying TJWG all the time. Do you ever stumble <laughs> over that? Oh, yes. It's constant struggle. <laughs> yes, it doesn't really fall off the mouth easily. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about the origins of the Transitional Justice Working Group. Oh, yes. Um, So as you briefly mentioned during the introduction, um, Transitional Justice Working Group, uh, so-called TJWG, uh, is a Seoul-based NGO, um, and it was actually founded by human rights advocates and researchers from five different countries in 2014. And as you know, the year 2014 was a significant year in the history of the North Korean human rights field because um, the Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, DPRK, published its report, Urging Actions for Accountability. So TJWG um, took action to respond to that and founded the organization. Mm. And to to add to that, um, actually TJWG is the first Korea-based NGO uh, focused on transitional justice mechanisms um, in the world's most repressive regimes, including North Korea. Um, So we aim to develop um, practical methods uh, for addressing massive human rights violations um, and advocating justice for um, victims in pre- uh, and post-transition societies. And to add add on to that, we collaborate um, and share our practice with uh, other organizations and individuals all across the globe concerned with the pursuit of um, accountability for mass atrocities and mm-hmm. human rights abuses. I know that uh, NKDB also does a lot of tracking and, and uh, you know, categorizing of data. Do you work uh, or have a, a liaison relationship with them? Yes, we're aware of the work that NKDB does. And yes, we, uh, we are in the same field. So yes, we do work um, together. And we, uh, as you probably saw on the recent report, we have mentioned the NKDB's publication. So mm-hmm. it's extremely crucial for um, for you know any CSOs to work together in this field to get the latest information inside North Korea. So just for our listeners at home, what's a CSO? Civil society organizations. Okay. Uh, and what, uh, broadly speaking, what kind of projects does uh, T Oh God, Transitional Justice Working <laughs> Group carry out? Yes. Um, so broadly speaking, the TJWG has three main projects going on currently. Um, so the main project to start off with, with is the mapping project that I am part of. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mapping project utilizes a digital mapping system to document and visualize evidence of possible crimes against humanity in North Korea. Um, the database and the mapping system we have uh, securely collects um, information on mass graves um, and killing sites to be visualized in the form of digital maps. And the data we collect also includes locations of national security offices, uh, local police, uh, and military units where uh, documentary evidence related to human rights abuses may be stored. Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, is the access accountability, and which is also called uh, AA. AA is an initiative of the TJWG and arose from our experience as a startup NGO. Um, seeking resources and expertise to guide the development of our structured project and systems. 
So AA provides training and resources for human rights documentation groups globally mm. um, through identifying areas of need and um, also matching uh, matching them with expertise required to achieve uh, their goals. So uh, the the main aim of AA is to assist uh, groups involved in monitoring and documenting human rights abuses in um, any region, but uh, particularly those who may be looking ahead to a transitional justice process mm -hmm. in their local context. Um, I, last but not Oh, sorry, just interrupt. When you say transitional process, you're talking about a, a, a change of system from one type of government to another type of government. Is is that basically what that means? Correct. Yes, okay. correct. All right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I'm sorry, go on to the, the third type of project that you do. Sure. Um, last but not least is the footprints. Um, and this was the most, uh, this is actually the most recent project that we've uh, launched last year. Um, so footprints is a joint civil society project to document and publish um, information concerning reported cases of arbitrary detention, um, adoption, ad abduction and enforced disappearances committed in and by North Korea. Mm -hmm. um, that includes the victims, uh, perpetrators, proceedings to seek redress relevant um, human rights instruments and North Korean resources. And this is actually the uh, it's an open and accessible and searchable online database that provides relational and geospatial information to the users. Mm. And you can find that on our website as well. Okay, you recently issued a report based on a new mapping project. Uh, what was the purpose of this project? Yeah, so um, so December 2021 marks um, 10 years of Kim Jong-un's role in North Korea, uh, which is quite significant. Um, and it's near it's been nearly eight years since uh, the UNCOI released uh, its report urging actions for accountability. So we have the mapping project have been documenting human rights violations to support a stronger push for accountability um, to respond to the UNCOI report and also as a part of conceptualizing transitional justice for North Korea. So we, as a mapping project uh, team, release a report every two years. So the last report that we released was in 2019. Mm -hmm. So it's already been two years since the, the last report. So now we've released a re new report called uh, Mapping Killings Under Kim Jong-un, North Korea's Response to International Pressure. And this latest report serves as an update to the past report in 2019, mm -hmm. but also um, presents an in-depth analysis of Hesan City, located in um, Yanggang province, uh, which is in the northeast of the country. And to mention, uh, to emphasize, um, so to speak, the special or uh, new component of this report is that it examines how state killings practices um, under Kim Jong-un's role have shifted in North Korea. Okay, and it was is there a, a hypothesis that this project was seeking to test? Yes, uh, so this project tests the hypothesis that uh, a stronger documentation and international advocacy cannot be ignored uh, by the North Korean regime, and perhaps leads to changes on the ground. Mm. And so, uh, yes, so this report examines whether these changes actually can be detected mm -hmm. um, in a decade where you know both international scrutiny of North Korea's human rights record increased um, and then um, Kim Jong-un consolidated his power. What kind of changes would you expect to see? Would that be fewer killings or more secretive killings? Um, based on our data, um, as you saw, the number is significantly low than the past reports that we have released. Mm. Um, and that is inevitable given the, the context of North Korea, but on top of that, given the nature of the pandemic. And so, uh, but we have been receiving different um, testimony stories and also we've been um, keeping up to date with the reports and uh, news articles published by different outlets um, that have mentioned secret and indoor killings mm. during the Kim Jong-un era. It's not that the secret killings and indoor killings have not existed before Kim Jong-un came to power. Right. But um, it's we. But then the news articles have mentioned a significant increase of such killings during his regime. Is there anything that we can say more broadly about how North Korea has changed after 10 years since uh, Kim Jong-un uh, took power? Are there any sort of you know bigger changes on the ground in North Korea? Um, so based on the escapee testimonies, 
they indicate that um, state-sanctioned killings continue to happen under Kim Jong-un. Mm. And the special component of our research is the spatial data analysis. So the spatial analysis, data analysis specifically on Hezhan. Um, That's looking at uh, satellite photographs, right? Yes, yeah. for, uh, that satellite imagery is from, from Google Earth. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, so spatial data analysis of Hezhan um, points toward a uh, state strategy of selecting locations that are away from the border and residential areas um, to carry out state sanctioned killings because mm. uh, those areas are easier to control the assembled crowds. Mm. And to add on to that, our interviewees have reported uh, that the assembled audiences at public killing events are being strictly monitored and controlled by state officials than before. Um, and that is to prevent um, information on public executions from you know, leaking outside the country. And another interesting finding was that um, multiple testimonies um, have mentioned about the use of pardons to propagandize the benevolence of um, Kim Jong-un's leadership. So that was quite an interesting finding for us. Mm. So let's just uh, talk about the public executions for a second there, because I see uh, an interesting, well, uh, let's call it a contradiction for a moment, but I guess it comes from perhaps competing incentives. On the one hand, uh, we've got North Korea wanting to make public uh, pu executions less public, but on the other hand, there are still public executions. So when are executions public and why? Do we know anything about that? Well, I can tell you based on our findings. So based on this recent report's finding, the most the public executions have taken place in open spaces uh, and fields, airfields, riverbanks, hills, and mountains. And the lists that I just mentioned are all public spaces. Mm -hmm. However, uh, the interviews have also mentioned about the shift in um, the locations of public killings. They have mentioned that in the past, uh, these were the very uh, commonly used public spaces for public killings. However, uh, very recently, or uh, for the time that they have uh, been in North Korea recently, they have noticed that public killings are taking in secret locations. Mm. Um, and when I asked them as an interviewer, when I asked them, do you know by any chance where those locations may be? And they mentioned that unfortunately they don't mm -hmm. because, you know, they're secret killings. Yeah. And I asked them, then where, how do you get this information from when you just mentioned that these are happening in secret right. places? And they mentioned that, you know, through, you know, words of mouth or through, you know, their families and friends who may be working on a state official levels. Um, so, so yeah, the, the shift in location of where public killings are being held um, has been extremely difficult to track as a, as a human rights documentation organization. Um, but we have been getting testimonies and, and stories from our interviews that, you know, the location is changing. It's interesting, isn't it, that on the one hand, they're having secret executions, but there's a a viewing public and it makes me wonder are these for specific types of crimes that you know that they still want somebody there to witness it or is it specific audiences that are being chosen to watch these killings maybe to serve as an example to them or to frighten them do you know anything about that yes um so based on our recent publication um the most commonly cited offenses that were announced at public executions were watching or distributing South Korean videos, mm. um, drug-related crimes, you know, prostitution, human trafficking, murder or attempted murder, or, you know, um, obscene acts. Um, so, but before we have recorded uh, a lot of charges related to stealing and or selling machines or materials built, uh, pilfered from factories or from infrastructure, um, such as, you know, power lines in the Kim Jong-un era. Right. So, yeah, those are the commonly stated charges at the public executions. Okay. Um, we, we, I think we'll get back to that a bit later on. But first of all, can you tell us about the different sources that you use? You mentioned uh, interviews, uh, but um, tell us a little bit about that. You mean different types of sources that we use in our database? Yes. When you're putting together a mapping project, uh, you're obviously mm -hmm. talking to people and, and looking at spatial uh, data. At, uh, tell us a bit about you know, how many interviews or what kind of interviews and, and, and how that process works. Sure. So our mapping project uh, is primarily based on testimonies from the North Korean escapee community. So as of now, um, we have 
683 interviews with North Korean escapees. Mm -hmm. And the, the, our research is based off of 442 testimonies of killing site locations. But on top of the um, testimonies, uh, which is you know, the qualitative data, uh, we also utilize uh, free and open source software um, to record, you know, store, analyze, and visualize testimonies and locations, which uh, the reason, the main reason for using the open source software is it gives a uh, powerful geospatially enabled database um, that permits, you know, a spatial and other types of analysis um, directly in the database. Um, but uh, also, like I mentioned, as I, as I mentioned previously, we also use Google Earth, mm -hmm. which allows yeah. access to uh, recent uh, as well as historical satellite imagery. Um, another re uh, source that we use is called the OpenStreetMap, uh, which is sourced by volunteer contributors, and it contains uh, hundreds and you know thousands of features, including buildings, roads, waterways, and places, and that includes North Korea. So yeah, those are the main um, sources that we use uh, within our research. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of interviewing uh, people from North Korea? Is that a, a traumatic experience for them? Are, are they long interviews? So the interview uh, usually takes uh, from an hour to sometimes three hours, or it could even last a day. Each interview is very unique to themselves, and it's different for, for each interviewee. So um, based on my personal experiences conducting interviews with the North Korean escapees during my time at TJWG, I've had witnessed uh, different interviewees going through different process of unpacking their stories uh -huh. related to human rights violations. So some interviewees will respond by saying how healing this whole process was by just sharing the relief of being able to share such a burdensome story and just recognizing that this is a shared, you know, collective experiences of so many North Korean, um, I mean, people from North Korea. Yeah. That is one experience, but another interviewee have mentioned to me that, you know, the the experiences of human rights violation that she's experienced, that, you know, she's sharing with me during the interview still haunts her to this day. Oh. She would wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it and not being able to fall asleep. And, and some might, you know, respond to it differently by saying that, you know, witnessing human rights uh, violation in North Korea did not traumatize them at all. So the repercussions of trauma can manifest in so many different ways. So it's really uh, important for us to emphasize that mm. and that it's not a um, single response. Right. Every interview, each interview, uh, interviewee responds to this differently. And uh, how do you check interviewees' accounts to make sure that they're verifiable or, or trustworthy? Yeah, that's a really important question, Jaco. Um, so within uh, our mapping research, uh, we have an internal uh, system of refining data. Yeah. So each data that we collect, uh, whether that be a location uh, or just you know the story, goes through a rigorous process of you know uh, refining data and also to check the credibility of the source that we want to you know essentially publish in our report. So after it's it's a very intricate and uh, rigorous process uh, which could be a bit difficult to uh, understand as an outsider mm. but each we have you know three main steps uh, so each step once we go through each step the site report, figures essentially that we have reporter in our publication that you and other readers see on the report consist of events the interviewee witnessed directly. And this is to simply put, you know, in a, di in a more digestible way of understanding this. Um, all of them are uh, witnessed directly by our interviewees, which mean their firsthand witnesses accounts. And they all have coordinates, which means we're able to identify a location of these reports. Um, and so the majority of our reports from our interviewees a process so far fall into this category. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also important for us to mention that the testimony based on rumor or speculation by the interviewee are not included in our report. Ah. How do you avoid the, um, the possibility that there might be an incentive for interviewees to exaggerate claims or to 
tell other people's stories, uh, for example. Uh, I mean, are, are uh, interviewees paid based on how many times or how long they're interviewed or, or anything like that? Yeah, that's also an important question. Um, as an organization, but also as a researcher, and I mean, personally, as a researcher of you know the mapping research, I take credibility very seriously, and we hold our research to the highest standard possible. Um, as I mentioned uh, to uh, previously, we go through a rigorous process of refining our figures, yeah. and that means all of our data collected so far based, you know, from the six years of research. But, you know, I mean, yes, we we do have that um, suspicion or not necessarily suspicion, but we do have that understanding while conducting our research or while conducting interviews with our interviewees as a researcher. So we make sure after the interview is over uh, to fact check to other different, um, you know, similar sources that might be available in other different research reports. But to answer your question on, you know, whether they're paid based on, you know, the number of hours that they sit in our interview, no, they don't. Um, we do provide a transportation and meal fees mm -hmm. for each interview, but that does not account for the number of hours uh, that they, you know, take time to interview with us or, right. or the number of times that they show up. Each interview is only done once. Okay, yeah. Because you, you, I'm sure you're aware, uh, just in the more broadly in the community, uh, that there are some groups, perhaps not as rigorous as yourself, that uh, uh, that pay people according to what stories they tell, and that that can have a perverse incentive to tell more stories or tell wilder stories. Right. Correct. Now, your, yes. the, the, some of the processes that you mentioned of uh, of, of checking your data—that's obviously, yeah, you know, that's back end. That's once the interview has already been carried out and that data has been collected. But I, I'm just wondering, you know, how is it possible to avoid that on the front end before you even uh, interview somebody? Absolutely. So um, before we start our interview, uh, you know, we run through a consent form. Um, but I always mention to them, you know. Yes, you're here to share your experiences of human rights violation. However, it is totally up to you to share however you want, meaning if you haven't experienced it, then it's perfectly fine for you to share that you have not or you did mm -hmm. not experience any of that. And and I reiterate the fact that some people have have not and you know they have just been referred by a friend to come sit here, you know, in the in the interview, but some people just simply say, "Oh, yeah, I actually haven't experienced mm. it." And it's important as an interviewer for, uh, as an interviewer myself, to uh, reiterate that before starting an interview to make the yeah. the you know interviewees feel more at ease and comfortable in sharing their experiences of human rights violations in the truest form as possible. And if they haven't experienced it, then it's okay for them to share that they have not experienced it. Right. How long have you been working with the Transitional Justice Working Group? I have working at the TGWG for the past year and a half. Okay. Have you, in that time, have you uh, come across any interviewees that you think are, oh, you know, this person is just totally unreliable. We can't ask them for another interview ever again. No, I, I, I don't, I can't think of any of, uh, any of an incident. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like that. No. Mm -hmm. uh, so you mentioned that some of the executions, uh, the more recent ones are, uh, for people who watched South Korean videos in North Korea. Is it fair to say that Kim Jong-un over the last decade has placed a special emphasis on rooting out South Korean culture and information and punishing those who spread it? Uh, I would say yes. Um, you know, uh, Daily NK actually recently uh, obtained, you know, explanatory material mm -hmm. for reactionary thought law. I'm sure you're aware of that, Jacko. Yeah. Um, and that was adopted in December, which is quite recent. And you know, a dr draconian laws like that um, indicate that Kim Jong-un is paying a particular attention to a South Korean content being exposed to the North Korean people. Mm. Is it, are execution, I mean, is execution the normal way of, uh, of punishing somebody right now in North Korea who is uh, guilty of spreading South Korean culture? Or is that just one of several different punishments available? Uh, to answer that question, well, the Article 27 of the uh, anti-reactionally thought law uh, calls for sentences of five to 15 years of uh, correctional labor against people caught watching or listening, you know, or processing films, recordings, uh, 
books, you know, draw drawings, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, from South Korea. And also like life sentences of correctional labor and even death uh, for individuals who import mm. and distribute uh, South Korean related content materials. Right. Now, your report counts uh, 27 testimonies of, of killings under Kim Jong-un. Did you expect more? Well, the, uh, the numbers you see in our report are lower than the actual number of data that we have in our database. Uh -huh. As I mentioned previously, we go through a rigorous process of refining our data. Mm. As we go through the process for each of our data, uh, we have to, you know, um, sort out some of the data that we can't, you know, consider to be credible. Right. And so the number comes down to, uh, or the number ended up coming down to 27. But, you know, we are definitely aware of the killings that are taking place inside North Korea um, in secret. And so we definitely expect the numbers to be higher, but given the limited access to the, you know, inter, I mean, Escapee North Korean escapee community, especially since the pandemic, um, the low number that you see in our report is something that we've kind of kind of expected. Mm, okay, tell us about uh, pardons. Who are they given to, and how are they used by the North Korean government? People who are pardoned and let free, like Park Geun-hye was today. Yes. Um, so it was quite interesting to find. Uh, find you know people who who are being pardoned in North Korea um so based on based on this recent publication mm. from 2012 um to 2015 um a number so over the course of like 3 years um a number of testimonies suggested that you know Kim Jong Un is trying to create this public image as a um you know forgiving mm. benevolent, benevolent leaders through pardon so um, the one incident or the one testimony from Pyongyang in 2012 or 2013 mentioned that um, out of out of 16 individuals who were put on trial, only six were sentenced to death mm. and the rest were pardoned. And the interview we quoted, you know, it was by the great leader's forgiveness. Yeah. Um, not it's not it wasn't because, you know, those six individuals were found um innocent right and another interviewee also gave you know similar accounts um of the accused specifically female victims mm. of human trafficking um being forgiven by you know the benevolence of kim jong-un and trials um so that was quite interesting um and also Wait, so what was their actual the, the crime of the women in, in north korea was was what sorry human trafficking that was the charge that was announced oh, um, i didn't know that was a, a, a crime in north korea we, we hear about it a lot of course uh, people brought into china uh, and trafficked there but i didn't know that was actually a crime in north korea well it's really hard to say that the charges announced at trials are or align with the actual acts committed by the accused mm. and so i think the you know the human trafficking that that phrase phrasing was mentioned by the interviewee ah. Um, so we try to stick to what the interviewees yeah. share with us and to uh, quote their uh, exact words rather than simplifying them or exaggerate them. Right. So these were the words given by the interviewees. Um, another interesting incident was in 2013, where, you know, 15 pardon women were taken in a bus after the trial and they were returned to their individual homes. And this was this happened in his mm. Gosh. And just presumably picked up their lives from where they left off. Pretty much, ah, yeah. Okay, wow. Uh, and what else did you learn from this particular mapping project? Um, there are a lot of things that we've learned. Um, I've learned through this mapping project, but one lesson or one thing that still kind of keeps me questioning and keeps me, you know, um, thinking is the psychological repercussions mm. of trauma mm. and, you know psychological repercussions uh, you know based on violence perpetrated by the north korean government um we've actually had a significant data based on you know um traumatic experiences um experienced by the north korean escapees and they have shared different ways that you know this experience still hunts them to this yeah. day and as a researcher i could not help but think about you know the generational impact you know perhaps you know the hunting experiences of this community um may not only you know end here but you know will will definitely affect generations to come mm. um and so um just kind of thinking about how you know the 
perpetuation of violence um, by the North Korean regime doesn't only affect the North Korean escapee community or the North Korean people inside North Korea, but people outside of that too, you know, the activists, researchers, and also uh, the the people of Korean descent as well. Uh, How many mapping projects have been released before this most recent one? Um, So we've released two reports. So one in 2017 Mm -hmm. and one in 2019 before, before this one. Okay. And is there anything, like, are, are they simply updates or is there something that's uh, fundamentally, you know, that distinguishes this one from the previous two reports? So this one in particular is not only an update to the past two reports, but this is, this uh, has a special component of an in-depth analysis of Hesan, mm. which essentially shows patterns of uh, killings, you know, before Kim Jong-un and during Kim Jong-un, um, kind of indicating that there has been a shift. Right. And Hesan is a city quite close to the border with China, isn't it? Yes, correct. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And people can find that report on your website, can they, and, and download it and read it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the website that you mentioned during the introduction, mm-hmm. they can go there and find our report okay. and download it in a PDF file. Right. We will include a, a link in the show notes to, uh, to the website there. Okay. Now, I want to ask you, uh, how do you hope that the results of your work will be used? Yes, that's that's a really good question. Well, we hope to you know continue spreading awareness of um, human rights violation in North Korea perpetrated by the Kim regime, um, you know, through the use of brutal and inhumane practice of violence. And you know, our mapping project, you know, as you know, documents human rights violations um, to support a stronger stronger push for accountability as uh, part of conceptualizing transitional justice for Korea and uh, North Korea. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, based on our recent publication and its findings, you know, we've shown that, you know, stronger documentation and international advocacy you know, cannot be ignored by the North Korean leadership um, and perhaps, you know, leads to changes on the ground. So we hope that our work can be used for that matter. Have you has the report received much media attention inside or outside Korea since it was uh, published? Well, inside North Korea, uh, I mean, you know, just generally Korea, South Korea. You mean? Yeah, it, sorry. I, I, let me rephrase that. I, I, I think I, I messed that up. Has the report received much media attention inside or outside the South Korea? Ah, yeah, South Korea definitely. Um, the report has received uh, significant global attention mm-hmm. since its publication on December 15. Um, and as of last Tuesday, our executive director um, updated us the number of articles that were written about our report mm. so far. And that was um, over 160 articles and in 10 different languages. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's quite a lot of pickup. Of course, NK News, uh, we reported it on it the, the day of the release, so uh, December 15th. And mm-hmm. the yes. New York Times had an article. Uh, out the next day uh, about it, mm. uh, but I also saw that the uh, the Daily Mail, uh, generally a sensation-seeking British tabloid, published an article on December seventeenth, uh, and its headline it, it likes long headlines. Its headline was "North Korean executioners publicly mutilate bodies with one man corpse burned by a flamethrower, flamethrower as his father was made to watch and torment prisoners due to die." Report finds. Does the headline accurately represent the findings of the report? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so this, the headline is, you know, this story is just one facet of the whole entire mm. report. Um, so, like, we understand as to why, you know, certain media would use such example like that to make it a headline to grab people's attention because, you know, such details provide a powerful image of what kind of violence um, Kim Jong-un imposes on his people. Mm. But we want to, you know, raise awareness of the diverse and nuanced experiences that the North Korean people have experienced inside North Korea. Yes, this type of, you know, inhumane, brutal violence does take place and have happened, have been experienced by people from North Korea, but there are also other sides of the stories too. So it's very important for us to not um, be focused on just one you know, single story, but rather look at the story from a broader angle, mm. you know, and to you know, remind ourselves that you know, these are human experiences, which means they are diverse, they're unique to themselves, um, they're nuanced. 
Right, but yeah, obviously the the problem is when you've got a a long report that few people <laughs> will read in its entirety, and then when it gets reported in the media, that often gets distilled down to its most sensational points, doesn't it? Mm. Is there a concern inside the Transitional Justice Working Group that its careful and rigorous and nuanced research could be uh, abused and oversimplified to another North Korea is a weird and crazy place story and 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 basically painting North Koreans as something other than human. Absolutely, Jaco. Um, that's a constant concern for us as an organization who deals with such delicate um, human stories, right? Mm. And, you know, it's not just human stories, but these are stories of our friends, you know, that we've now call our family, you know, some, I mean, as a researcher myself, but also interviewer and, you know, someone who's been involved with, you know, different projects, but also have worked with North Korean escapee communities over the past several years. You know, these are my friends stories. And so we do uh, take this matter uh, seriously. And it's very unfortunate as an organization to see um, this sensational mm. uh, type of story to be only acknowledged and to be reported and unfortunately is the only you know information that you know outside readers might receive or get to hear about north korea yeah. and so i mean as a reader i think it's always our responsibility you know as a reader to be mindful of different experiences that a person goes through or a society goes through or a country goes through and to you know fact check and to Con uh, continue looking at the country or you know monitoring the country from a multi-dimensional angle not just through a single yeah. you know sets of lens you know and, and beyond uh media coverage is there also a concern that the tjwg's work could be used or misused by a more hawkish government in south korea or the u.s to launch kinetic strikes on north korea yes um it, there is a concern of that, um, and so once once that actually happens, then we will take uh, we will take action to that, and we do take preventative me measures to that. But you know, um, and that 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 definitely is a concern of our organization. The uh, the issues that the Transitional Justice Working Group seeks to highlight, um, you know, uh, state sanctioned killings and uh, and abductions and and other human rights abuses, these seem to be problems that can really only be worked on at a fundamental level or, or even solved after there is some form of deep mm. transformation in North Korea, back to this concept of transition again, a, a change of government. Is it fair to say that the TJWG seeks and advocates for regime change in North Korea? Uh, well, uh, to answer your question, you know, the transitional justice mechanism, um, you know, as you mentioned, takes place after a transition occurs. Mm. But this is a preparatory work. You know, we cannot wait until the transition occurs and then do the work. Right. Then it will be way too late. So we take the prepa preparation work very seriously. And even if the transition might not happen, like, I don't know, like tomorrow or like decades down mm. the road, it's extremely important for us to build this infrastructure of transitional justice mechanism to be implied on the Korean Peninsula context when the transition um, occurs. Um, and so you know, this uh, specific work of locating sites um, is crucial in preventing, you know, blanket amnesty for um, perpetrators. And not only that, um, it's extremely important in, you know, in terms of like quickly, you know, securing, uh, securing forensic and documentary evidence um, in the future for investigations and also trials of individuals um, charged with serious, you know, human rights violations. And so, Yes, this work may seem far-fetched for some people, but extremely important, extremely important to continue doing it now. But let's uh, pretend for a moment or let's assume for a moment that uh, North Korea will continue as it is with its current form of government, its current system for another 50 years, you know, well beyond our lifetimes. Um, is, can can <laughs> justice even be said to take place you know how, what when when victims and perpetrators are long yeah. since dead what kind of justice is possible mm, yeah that's that's a really important question and it's a question that we ask ourselves all the time too if, to answer that question i want to emphasize the fact that um the core of transitional justice is the recognition that you know, those who have been most affected by human rights, you know, abuses, mm. 
you know, should be the ones who guide the process and the, and design the remedies after transition mm. occurs. So this is quite a bottom-up approach rather than the top-down approach that we often see in our societies, you know. Um, and and this may come at the expense of, you know, I mean, the top-down approach sometimes, you know, may come at the expense of speaking truth to power. However, this, you know, bottom-up approach, the transitional justice, you know, mechanism approach gives, you know, victims or survivors uh, the, the power and the control to, you know, speak to, speak truth to power. And so, you know, this transitional justice uh, process seeks to the need to empower um, our survivors, our victims, as they move forward into the future, whether it be, you know, in South mm. Korea and inside North Korea, that's that's really difficult, right? And yeah, like inside, I mean, people in North Korea, um, as a documentation group, what we can do best is to continue uh, doing our work so that we can raise awareness of the human rights abuses that they're experiencing by the regime. And hopefully that would push the Kim Jong-un regime to make changes on the ground. Have you, um, I'm just curious whether you've got any historical examples of uh, places or transitions that you look to, to uh, either inspire or to guide you or to model after, or as perhaps as a negative model of, of how it shouldn't work. Yes, yes. So we do uh, look at different societies. Um, personally, I've uh, I was in North, I mean Rwanda. Mm -hmm. So just looking at a historical um, example, the after the Rwandan genocide occurred in 1994, you know the transition occurred and they went through a transitional justice um, process. You know the Gachacha Court, for instance, that invited you know perpetrators and the victims of mass atrocities were you know were invited for. And, and put on trial together um, on a more of a local way. Um, it wasn't like it, the, these trials weren't held at, at courts. They were held in the backyards of their neighborhoods, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, looking at these kind of examples are, you know, kind of pushing us to look, look at the, the Korean context in a more localized way. How can, you know, transition justice process or mechanism um, can take place in the very in, in the Korean context in a way that serves the Korean people in a way that it you know prioritizes the cultural aspect of of the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. so yeah, that's one example. What about it within <laughs> South Korea itself? Uh, I'm thinking about the, uh, the the transitions from a military dictatorship to a to a civilian government, uh, or even how uh, South Korea dealt with. North Korean collaborator, pro North Korea collaborators who were uh, working together with the uh, Korean People's Army in the early part of the Korean War in 1950. Have you looked into how how some of those, uh, you know, how justice was meted out in some of those cases? Yes. Um, so we actually conducted our research that specifically looks at transitional justice from a North Korean escapees perspective, and that research can be found on our our website mm. as well and it it was produced as a report mm. as well so it looks at we we uh, uh we asked our interviewees of how different transitional justice mechanisms should take place in the Korea, in the context of korean peninsula mm. from their own experiences and also from their own perspective so giving them the ownership of kind of imagining what kind of transitional justice process that they want to see um in the korean peninsula um context so that was quite an interesting research because not only does it focus on the survivors it gives them the autonomy to you know to give us the not necessarily the mm -hmm. answer but give us the ideas of what the transitional justice should look like um that encapsulates the perspectives of the north korean escapee communities you know it cannot only be you know the people uh, the perspectives of people who are in charge but rather you know it has to be bottom up right the, yeah. it, the perspectives of north korean people should be at the center of the transitional justice that will take place you know in the future hopefully um in the korean context so that report was published um i believe in 2019 mm. actually it's called exploring grassroots transitional justice oh, okay. and can be found on our um website as well okay and you publish uh, all of your reports in in both english and korean do you yes so in the past they were only in english and mm -hmm. korean but lately we've also included the spanish oh, translation okay. right 
Uh, mm -hmm. That could be found on all our all on our website. Does the uh, the Transitional Justice Working Group have in its uh, mission statement or goals or any of its official documentation uh, a uh, a statement about how it feels or when it feels transition should take place in North Korea, or is it really just uh, we're getting the documentation ready, but it, whenever it happens, it'll happen. Yeah, whenever it happens, it will happen. You know, hopefully not too late, you know, but um, because the work that we're doing is the preparation of the transition that that hopefully will take place in our yeah. lifetime. But if not, then like, you know, this work doesn't go mm. to waste. You know, this work will maintain to be as important to the future generation. Um, and so so whenever it happens, hopefully our work can provide a you know path or a guidance mm. to a transitional justice mechanism to be implemented in the Korean pen Peninsula context. And have you seen any sign of uh, of either South Korean or American political groups uh, using transitional justice working groups uh, research for political purposes to to try to you know bring about uh, uh, regime change in North Korea? So far, mm. no, we have not seen um, any you know political or activist groups um, that have used our research uh yeah to bring about regime change and what's next for uh the transitional justice working group and and the mapping project mm -hmm. um so so aside from documenting and mapping the main three types of locations um connected to human rights violations the next step specifically for the mapping project we want to focus on collecting data on secret and indoor killings and we also want to conduct a, a chain a chain of command study um, to understand, you know, which uh, individuals or uh, state agency, agencies may be responsible for, you know, these state-led killings. And so both of these directions will support our ongoing research, you know, collecting escapee testimonies and locating points of interest to push for accountability. Now, that must be becoming quite hard these days because, as I'm sure you're aware, defected numbers are way, way down in the last two years, aren't they? Absolutely. It's been extremely difficult for us, and that will continue to be a huge predicament that we will continue to face as a human rights documentation group, you know, working on North Korean human rights mm. violations. Um, so that's why the collaboration um, with other CSOs have been extremely, extremely important. Um, you know, we've uh, we've been partnering, partnering, partnering with um, Daily oh, NK, yes. and you know that that has been extremely invaluable for us as an organization because you know they have these connections inside North Korea that we mm. don't have, who share about what's actually happening on the ground, and so this mutual collaboration and you know work has been extremely important as a documentation group to continue documenting despite all at all odds you know and despite how difficult and challenging that's yep. become to reach north korean escapees who who have the most recent information related to this matter inside north korea so we hope to further our collaboration with other groups to um continue this collective effort um in documenting human rights violations that are continuing to happen under the Kim Jong-un regime. So your work is, is far from finished. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we have a long way to go. I want to go back as, as a final question. I want to go back to um, there are three different types of locations that you map in a mapping project. And we, we talked a bit about uh, uh, the, the killing sites. Uh, we didn't talk much about uh, grave sites. But the third one, uh, official locations which may house documents or other evidence related to these events. And I, I've been interested for a long time by the, uh, the the prospect that in North Korea there must be huge paper archives because mm. a it, you know digitalization mm. is, is a slow process it hasn't completely happened in North Korea yet and b people are encouraged to write written reports about everything I mean we've heard you know in, in multiple sources that uh, when a North Korean has an extended conversation with a foreigner for example that there must be a report on that mm. so I could just imagine that there must be huge archives in the, the country is that something uh -huh. that you've uh, mapped out as well like where these document centers are in north korea and you know how big the buildings are and, and done some some calculations of how much must you know how many floors are there and how much paper must the, the each floor carry and that sort of thing 
Yes, Jaco, that's extremely an important question. Thank you so much for bringing it up. Um, actually, um, we were able to identify a Yanggang Provincial mm. Archive and the entrance to the storage unit, um, but you know, the by the uh, formal prosecutor mm. um, from Hezan. And so, you know, he was able to provide information on, you know, to the amount of document that might yeah. be stored in this archive and, you know, the possibility of such archive existing in each province, you know. Um, and so that's what we didn't include the location of Kengdo, the, you know, the mm -hmm. archive in our map for security reasons, but want but we hope to continue um looking for such location yeah. um from interviewee testimonies because as you mentioned it's extremely important to find these locations right. where they storing massive Mass, yeah. you know amount of um evidential documentations related to human rights violations so yes yeah, and, and and not just human rights violations but but really you know everything related to uh to uh, yes. to you know mm -hmm. north korean workings of the government to surveillance to the party mm -hmm. uh, and if you've got a you know a a, a 70 year plus uh, consistent system there uh, and paper takes up mm -hmm. a lot of volume it's very heavy and it needs special conditions so you must mm -hmm. imagine that every 10 to 20 years they'll be building more of these buildings and uh, you know with the special mm -hmm. uh, temperature control or climate control things to keep the paper safe all that kind of stuff yes absolutely yeah that uh, that's very interesting uh well i want to thank you once again for coming on the show today ayong park it's been great talking to you Thank you, Jaco, for having me. It was it was a great pleasure to talk about you know the recent publication that we released, um, and hope that you know the stories of the interviewees, the North Korean escapees that we've you know had the pleasure and an honor to talk to, can you know spread as far and wide as possible. Thank you. You're welcome. And don't forget, listeners, you can find the Transitional Justice Working Group online at TJWG Seoul on Twitter or en.tjwg.org. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, you can always send them to us at podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs>